Welcome to the Better ROI from Software Development Podcast. A podcast aimed at those that fund software development and those that work with them. In a series of short weekly podcasts, I, your host Mark Taylor, hope to educate and inform on why traditional management processes won't get you the best return on your investment. And along the way, I'll provide advice on how to improve that. Welcome back to the Better ROI from Software Development Podcast. It's taken till this very special 83rd episode, but we finally have our first guest. I'd like to welcome Trevor Ewan to the show. Trevor, tell us a little about yourself. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, uh, I'm a software engineer based in the US. You can probably tell I'm American. And I currently run a small firm that works with non-technical clients, uh, which is something that you talk a lot about and kind of the way we connected. So thanks so much for having me. In this episode, I wanted to explore how you, Trevor, interact and provide services to those non-technical customers. You operate what we in the UK would describe as a software house, a business providing software solutions to its clients. And from what I can see, you're doing an excellent job for those clients achieving an impressive 95% return rate for additional projects. So like a lot of service providers, you never quite know what the reason they come back is. I mean, on one hand, it could just be you're the only plumber in the neighborhood, so they have to keep calling you and they've never really been happy with your work. I'd like to think it's a better case for us. And part of that is that we're you know engaging in continuous improvement with them. And so like a lot of this, some of the customers I have almost accidentally fell into my lap and you know them through personal relationships. A lot of times, you know, from being in software, they even confuse what you do. You're a computer guy, you do this. They probably assume it's the wrong kind of problem you can help them with. And that's something like a big storage or uh, Excel based issue that they're just having in their own internal operations. Uh, Later, they actually find out what you do and light bulbs start going off and you know, in the case of some of the people I met early on, they were actually pretty sophisticated. And, and that was uh, one of the things I think we'll talk about a bit is, you know, how to how to target that exact right buyer. And it's more than just the customer, but also the person you're going to be interfacing with um, throughout the whole process. So it's, you know, it's the person I often refer to as the champion, who's going to be your internal, your internal contact with whatever customer you're, you know, interfacing with. And uh, I was very fortunate that the first one I think back to the first customer you know, I've worked in uh, to use the, the British term software house for a long time, but we did more of an agency model where we were coming on board larger companies and working by the hour. Uh, and I've been doing that kind of work since 2011. But when I started working with these more these smaller non-technical clients, people who don't have uh, customers, the very first one I did, I was very fortunate. They, they knew exactly what they wanted to build uh, in, a, in a way that's almost kind of impressive, actually, for a non-technical buyer. And that was a great ease into uh, the communication and, and learning what this, this kind of customer is like exactly. We've used the term non-technical buyer a number of times already in this episode. What is your definition of a non-technical buyer? Probably the sweet spot that I'd like to be in I think of this as kind of a spectrum in terms of the level of sophistication technically that a buyer will have. And there is, I I looked at kind of three groups. I, you know, I think of 
if you look at a percentage scale, someone who's over the middle in terms of technical sophistication, that's someone I think of as technical in part because, you know, once you get up to 100%, you're talking about, you know, machine learning data scientists and, and people who just know, you know, way more than me actually about technology and, and about the kind of things you can do. And then there's on the other end of the spectrum, the zero to 20% is a very, you know, these people, I mean, they're, they're your relatives who, who call you up for help on basic things on computers, right? And they really don't have a good foundational understanding of how things work, how they would put some kind of project like this together. They probably never worked in a super process oriented realm that had a lot of technology. And then what I made up in my, just the chart that I, uh, recommended to you is this, there's this kind of 30 to 50% range of sophistication. And that is a perfect buyer uh, for where I am sitting because that kind of customer knows enough. They know enough about what it can do. And they may even be able to help you in terms of the concepts and system design. They're also just a little better at making decisions and figuring out exactly what should be the capabilities of a platform. So that's the first thing that I want to do when targeting this kind of buyer, this kind of customer. Do you find it different working with a non-technical buyer than, say, a chief information officer or a chief technology officer? Yeah, I think I think this is where where the kind of the meat of the discussion is, uh, because I, you know. I'll just put it out there. I, I really like this kind of customer. I don't do it just because I, I can't work with the other kind, uh, but I, I enjoy it quite a bit. Um, but there's a, a number of things you got to know about, you know, where, where this person, person I say, or even, you know, it could be an organization within a company lies. And one of the, one of the biggest things is that they are not concerned with the same kind of questions that a development team normally is, right? And so there's a lot of, uh, we use a term in the States, inside baseball. It just means it was an old, uh, I believe it was a radio show back in the day. And it just means there's a lot of information about baseball that is only interesting to people who are actually involved in the sport and have a lot of knowledge about the sport. And outside of that, it's not really important to anybody. And so when you get into an inside baseball conversation, that's, that's, you know, we know those conversations. That's the developer conversations of what frameworks you're using, what tools are using for this. Oh, that pattern's not good. Uh, this approach is not good. Uh, you know, we 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 aim for this kind of idiomatic style in our you know framework or code base development. You know, those kind of discussions that like come up a lot. You know, in between developers and and people we know, uh, the non technical buyer just does not care about that stuff. Um, every now and then, you will get a comment about, oh, I hope you're using this latest technology because they they have some reason for caring or think they have some reason for caring. But their primary concerns are going to be what is the actual solution you're building? How is that managed for them? What's the cost? And then you know uptime and probably usability concerns at the tail end would be another thing as well. But even that, they're going to be less opinionated than your average you know, tech tech savvy buyer who I think is someone who would know a lot of the frameworks, a lot of the UI kits, how to build a responsive web app or something like that. The non-technical buyer is going to have much more, I just want to say simple understanding of that, which is make sure it works on my phone, make sure it works on the tablet, right? You know, simple stuff like that. And then the needs are going to differ massively from the kind of pure technical buyer when you're working with the CTO's office. 
So one of the dichotomies I talked about a little bit was at the top of the funnel, you know, early on when you're talking to these folks, they do want you to know a lot of information. And what that means is they will just throw 15 to 20 different APIs or services at you or different concepts, and they'll expect you to be able to speak to all of them. Uh, and part of that is that they're just playing around with different ideas, different issues in their business. They don't recognize all the time that developers, people who work in software, you know, we know just a little bit about any given platform. And then the moment we do an implementation, we're going to pour through the documentation, which is typically how you do it. Uh, but then once you start working with them, they're going to grapple on to a few specific topics. And that's where I talk about, you know, lower down in the funnel, you're going to need few things to deal with them. So much so that my, you know, my best customers at this point are really asking us for one consistent kind of implementation, working with the same kind of system, because what they've done is organize their whole business now around uh, these aspects of the system. And, and then a good example here would be insurance underwriting. Our, every single platform we build for uh, one customer of ours all taps into the exact same insurance underwriting platform. So we know not a large number of things, but we know a lot about that platform because we keep integrating with it over and over again. Probably the thing I love best just from my background is the architecture and infrastructure is not really deliberative. You know, we're, we're, we're pretty much there to be the experts. So they're, they're never going to tell me that there's something wrong with a certain kind of infrastructural or architectural approach. The only thing they're going to be concerned with is costs, especially on the server side. And beyond that, I would think designing UX is not as important as you might think, because a lot of times these buyers are not producing a product that is targeted at the outside. They're often dealing with internal workflows and internal tools, and therefore they're able to accept a more limited level of design and UX. And that varies from time to time, but we've, we've done less work where it seems like uh, they need mobile or tablet support and certainly less where they need robust design. Are there different problems when it comes to working with a non-technical buyer? Yeah. I mean, I think you're always choosing, you're kind of choosing which problems to deal with in life, right? And you're going to either have one set or another set, right? So one, one kind of thing that's very common and has been the root of a lot of relationship ending that I've seen more on the enterprise uh, technical buyer side is the fact that teams can't agree on frameworks or architectural patterns, right? So that virtually does not happen here. This, once again, I said, you know, that's not super important to this kind of buyer, but then there's other things that are going to become new problems that you've maybe never encountered before. You've always worked with teams with a high degree of technical understanding. With a non-technical buyer, they're coming to you for your expertise. So not just to do the job, but how to do the job. Right, right, right. So I think, and I think that's important. The, the power, you know, if you think about the kind of the Venn diagram of knowledge, the, the diagram is so heavy on your side of the technology. And they really don't want to enter into that too much. Cost is the one area where they, they are going to have questions typically. And their business is the area of the Venn diagram where they have the most knowledge and you probably don't have a ton of overlap because if you've worked with a lot of different kinds of businesses, you're going to have to remain fairly agnostic. You're going to have to be pretty open to whatever new curveballs they throw at you and say, oh, no, that's just the way it is in the underwriting business. 
which you know can come as a surprise to people who are used to working in a very rational or process-oriented way. I would say one of the big ones that we see a lot of problems is uh, customers misunderstand what QA is like exactly. And it's a misunderstanding on both sides of that spectrum. One is how to do it and the fact that they do need to continue doing it. And the fact that because they are the best user, they will actually know the hidden little parts of the system. And so we need to have some kind of robust QA strategy in place. The flip side of that is they are often unaware how big of an aspect ongoing defect review and QA is for other companies. So we'll have a moment sometimes when we onboard a new client where there'll be a bug in the software and it's, it's quite a freak out moment relative to what it would be in any kind of organization that's used to having that kind of stuff happen and say, oh, no, it's not a big problem. We'll just fix it. We'll redeploy, right? So there is this education process. Sometimes people you know, forget that they bought software. They, they may think they bought a bridge or something where you know, now we've got this defect and, and, and someone's going to get hurt. And obviously there are you know, bad things that can happen with people's data and bad things that can happen with security. But one of the things we emphasize is just the continuous improvement aspect of it. Uh, it's very easy. And if you haven't worked in this environment, you can take that for granted a little bit. Long-time listeners will know that I heavily promote that continuous improvement mindset to get the best return on their software spend. And I know that it is still a message that will take time to be accepted by many non-technical business owners. How do you gain the confidence of those business owners that you know best how to serve their needs? Yeah, this is this is a big one. I mean, we're spending a lot of time talking about this right now because I think it was the area where we needed to evolve most. So a couple things I did. One is I put together a proposal for, and you know, I regretted not having this, but a lot of it had just been had been managed on a one-on-one basis, but I, I realized we need to standardize it more. So one was just having an on-call schedule but through our team and then providing a standardized SLA document to every one of the customers to just say, here's what you could expect in terms of people actually dealing with issues in the system. And this is obviously really important, you know, just to make sure that our lives are kind of normalized and we're able to spread these responsibilities to the team. But it's really good for them to know, too, on one hand, that they will get immediate feedback on an outage, you know, even if they're waking us up in the middle of the night. The flip side being, you know, minor issues with a workaround, you know, there's going to be a little bit of a wait on those things. They're going to have to just go into the queue. The thing we did is we're, we're trying to be proactive about uh, upgrades and platform reviews. So we've started to do that on the quarter. So uh, we will manage a number of systems that aren't go- undergoing a lot of feature development. And what I wanted to get ha- habituated through the customers is the idea that every quarter we're going to just go in there and run a bunch of upgrades, You know, mostly just looking into the package manager and making sure everything's up at the latest minor version so that we're actually getting a lot of the bug fixes and, and most importantly, the security patches. So that has been something that, you know, if you do it every quarter, it's a lot easier. And, and unfortunately, I've got a couple applications that, you know, it's been a few years, right? And this, they're fine. They're running fine. But there's probably uh, some security issues that we need to deal with in those. And, and that's why just forcing it to happen on the quarter was a good call for them and for us. It just makes our, our maintenance overhead a little lower. 
It's sound advice to help the client think about the long-term maintenance of their systems. Often, I find that the clients consider only the initial cost of the software's creation, not the ongoing maintenance that it needs through to the end of its life. By being proactive with the customer, you're setting clear expectations on responsibilities and what they could expect from the relationship. Absolutely, yeah. And I think, for me, one of the things that's been a realization is just people can't quite see what's in my brain, right? So there is an outpouring of just you know proactive information. You know, it's it, it was said to me at the earlier part of my career, and it's it's just truer every day. You know, people people would always tell me, you know, your technical skills are going to get you in the door. They're going to get you started in this career, and and long term, it's going to be some of those liberal arts fundamentals. You know, knowing how to write, knowing how to communicate information that are going to be the things that ultimately you know, make your success at the end, and that's a big one. Uh, We've started doing just weekly updates with everyone who has an ongoing contract with us. I mean, it was it was just incredibly stupid that I was not doing this before, right? It, it has miraculous uh, ability to just calm them down to say, oh, that issue we talked about last week, it's getting looked at this week. And someone proactively told me that instead of them, you know, shooting me a message and saying, hey, when is this getting looked at? And actually, it's on my project planning board. So it's easy for me to just say, oh, yeah, it's getting looked at soon. If I can be even more proactive about it, I mean, the trust is, is just there. It's clear that the more that we in the IT community communicate, the better that level of trust becomes. That that level of trust is critical for any organisation that relies on us so heavily. Let's move on to the working relationship. How do you achieve the best for your clients? So the key thing here is that they are not going to pay an endless amount of money to get something out the door. You know, in the way that an enterprise customer has got huge, huge problems that they need to throw a lot of people, a lot of hours at, and you know, they'll pay the bill as long as the thing gets to market, right? On this side of the spectrum, you're dealing with a much tighter budget, a much tighter understanding of what it means to build a project like this and maybe actually some flexibility on turnaround time and certainly flexibility on the choices that you make in terms of how you run the technology operation. One of the biggest ones would just be to, we use standardization like crazy. And a book I will plug here is, uh, it's not a technology book, but it's a book called The E-Myth Revisited. It's by Michael Gerber. And it's a fantastic business book. It is focused on standardization of process to a ridiculous degree. And the businesses he studies in the book are actually franchise businesses, mostly restaurants. And you know, Gerber is not focused on the restaurant business so much as he's focused on this idea of if you can create a repeatable process that is so ironclad, you then you know, reap all the benefits of that value down the line. Uh, and that is the thing you've created. Your business is not, say, hamburgers. Your business is actually the repeatable process of being able to make that hamburger the exact same way every single time in every single place that everyone orders it. It's a little harder to do with custom software, but there's a, there have been a lot of things we've been able to take from that. For one thing, you know, with all the developers I work with, the project is always set up in the exact same way. So you could think about that in terms of folder structure. The readme docs are the same. 
uh, we have a standardized developer handbook that goes across all of our code bases. And even code bases that aren't up to date, we're often saying, yeah, that one's not up to date with the latest standard, but you know, here are the gaps. So we act- actively document what those gaps would be. So they know, A, where they could go with it, and B, you know, what the actual desired standard is, you know, regardless of what they're doing. And this has been excellent because we've had, especially on the staffing side, we've had developers just jump between projects very fluidly. And we're talking about customers in completely different businesses doing different kind of work in terms of their platforms. But the big thing that we standardize on is the technology side. So that's one huge one. Can't recommend that enough. And that's that's very hard to do. It, it's almost impossible to you know say go into Goldman Sachs and go into HBO and give them the exact same kind of thing um, because they do have concerns about the technology. They do have a uh, concern about what kind of architecture you're using. But these these customers want once again they want a working product. And because you have all the leverage on the technology side, they're they're going to accept you know the standard product on this one. So the other part is delegation. We allow our developers to be very independent. And this is actually less about non-technical buyers, but it's more about the way we run the firm. And we want them to contribute to the products as if these uh, projects were open source. And that doesn't mean that we you know, just open them up. They're obviously private uh, client information. All of the developers are working for us and they're obviously working under an NDA for the client. But the open source aspect of it is they are making forks of the projects and they're submitting independent pull requests, they're evaluating issues, they're logging issues to the project as well, right? So we're, we're trying to build in that continuous improvement on the developer side, which is something that I actually think a lot of our customers don't even know that this is happening behind the scene, but it's, it's a really cool thing that I think they'd be happy to know that there's people, you know, developers who work with us who maybe don't even know them super well, who are sitting around thinking about defects on their product and, and fixing those things sometimes for a bounty, you know, sometimes because we ask them to. So that's a big one. And that goes with the standardization because it allows the developers to move quickly between projects. And then the biggest one on our side with the, you know, the customer relationship management is how do we manage time, right? So that's, that's the ultimate asset in this business. Uh, so if I tell each customer, I'm going to have a two hour meeting with them every day, you know, I've lost almost all my leverage, right? So we do try and limit meetings. We, we, we try and get them on request as much as possible, get emails going out instead with updates. And, and that's why, you know, proactive updating is a big uh, part of this. If we are doing some kind of, um, you know, check-in meeting, we want to have a pretty robust agenda and pull up all the items that we would need to deal with with that customer. So it could jump around through a lot of different topics, but that way we're just being pretty efficient with it. So, hey, we had some issues with this. This system's not connecting. What do you want to do about this? We've got this open contract. Uh, also, we're waiting payment on this, you know, kind of stack up all the issues you have. And I love videos. I, I do video demos like crazy. And just even uh, this week, I just switched to, uh, I'll make a brief product plug here, Google's new thread.it product. I don't know if you've checked that out, but it's just a, a, it's a free video recorder that lives uh, right on the Chrome uh, plugins. And it's really nice. You, know, you can create a multi-stage video with screen sharing with whatever you want. Uh, and then you can just create links to it that are either scoped to a certain uh, Google users or fully public links if you want to. 
I assume you're using those videos to provide product demos and updates to the customers and then to elicit feedback from the customer? Yeah, yeah, 100%. That's the way to avoid lengthier check-ins. And uh, I, I probably overuse them, to be honest, but I've, I've been very happy with it. You know, sometimes I'll just give them a video update about a billing issue or something as well. And, you know, thread.it, I just started using this week, but I've been using different screen recorders now for a decade. So it's just gotten a lot better because people are in, uh, integrating with the browser now. I think Loom was the product that was really big in this, in this area. And it looks like Google is, is looking to eat their lunch. And uh, that's why they created this thread.it, but it integrates very nicely with Google in terms of the permissioning. So that, that's really nice for us because we use uh, Google Workspace to manage our permissions. Again, long-term listeners will know that I advocate rapid feedback cycles. Be it to confirm that you're heading in the right direction, or sometimes even more valuably, that you're heading in the wrong direction. I can see video being an incredibly useful tool for that. Yeah, and the best, I mean, the best thing that happens is the customers start to imitate you, and all of a sudden they're sending videos back. And that, that's, that's truly a magnificent thing. When you start getting defect review and feature review from the customers in video format, and you can just take those and you can throw them right into the project management system that you're using to you know, make sure, hey, developers, here's what the customer said. Here's exactly what they need on this and you know, from their own words. And that helps us. It enables, you know, as you know, you're in the UK, time zone aspect of that, right? You know, we have one customer that's based in Australia. And so trying to find times to meet with them is not easy to begin with. So they're just more, I think, attenuated to that as well. But as time zones become less of a barrier for people working together, whether, you know, within the same organization or as uh, customers and service providers, I think this is going to be become a more and more common way people are going to communicate with one another. As we draw close to the end of our time, is there anything else that you would like to cover? Well, uh, thanks so much for having me, Mark. I really appreciate it. And if you want to know anything about our firm, you can find out about us at stg.software. You can also shoot me an email, trevor at stg.software. And yeah, I'm just happy to talk with anyone who's interested in this space I think it's had a good run in 2020 as more and more folks like us have gone out on their own and maybe decided to work in a slightly different way. Pushing remote forward as well is helping a lot of these kind of customers think about their potential too. So I think there's a lot of growth in this space. I'll add your contact details to the show notes. It's been a real pleasure speaking to you today and learning from your experiences. Thank you again for giving up your time to be the first guest on the podcast. Thanks, Mark. I know you're going to have many more great ones, so I'll keep listening. And to you, the listener, thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. And I look forward to speaking to you again next week. This podcast has been hosted by me, Mark Taylor. It has been produced by Red Folder Consultancy Limited, a consultancy that can help you achieve better return on your software development investment. You can contact them or have a say on upcoming podcast topics at red-folder.com podcasts. Or you can reach out to me on Twitter at redfoldermark. If you're getting value from this series, 
please tell a friend and help me grow my audience. Thank you.